We will be in chapter 2 this morning. We will consider verses uh, 37 through 41. We have been studying so far uh, of late. Uh, This is part 3 of the biblical exposition of what uh, they had just witnessed on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit of God was poured out. And, uh, and what follows is Peter's biblical exposition of just what occurred. And um, today, we're going to look at what is the immediate response to the gospel message that was preached by Peter in that he said that Jesus, God, has made Jesus both Christ and Lord. And you might remember last week when I said that I was going to leave you with that point, what are you going to do with Jesus? What will you do with him? Because it is without a doubt, without a fact, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Jesus Christ is indeed the Savior sent to save Sinners, what are you going to do with Jesus? Especially knowing that as he leaves the message, it was your sin that nailed him to the cross. It was your sin that held him there. It was my sin that held him there. So what are we going to do with Jesus? That is where we will pick up today. So our normal mode or operating procedure here or normative practice is to take the scripture in its context and then upon hearing it, we will expound it upon it and then we are to respond accordingly. So first we will pray and then we will read the text under our consideration and then we will jump in right from there. So first let us pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for the grace bestowed upon us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. We ask for the power of grace to illuminate this passage to our minds this morning. We ask for your grace to inflame our hearts. We ask for grace to move our will to obedient faith. We pray for the church that gathers today at Yamhill Christian. I pray, Lord, that the gospel may be clear, correct, and compelling. I pray that you would anoint the teaching of Pastor David there, as well as me here that your church might be formed uh, in obedience by the truth of the gospel. And I ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you're able, would you stand with me as we read the scripture together from uh, Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and all the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is God's word. You may be seated. I want to pose this question to you this morning. Who is responsible for the preaching of the truth? 
Is the Sunday sermon a time to catch up on your sleep? As a listener to the Word of God preached, is this a passive experience wherein one man stands up and unloads data and the rest just passively endure 40 to 40 to 50 minutes or however long I go so that you can get to your lunch plans? You see, Paulie Pewsitter, since I know we don't have a Paul here, when the Word of God is preached, you're expected to do something with it. You're not just to sit and passively be informed by the truth, but you have a responsibility to be formed by it and to be moved into action. See, the goal of the preacher and the goal of the listener is exactly the same. It is to bring about the obedience of the faith. That is the goal of the preaching, is that the hearers would be obedient to the faith. And the hearer should come prepared to hear the Word of God and to obey what it says. So you come with the intention of obeying what the Word of God says. I think oftentimes in churches, people come with no intention of obeying what they're going to hear. Right? They have no preparation whatsoever. So they think that the, that the pastor does all the preparation, that he prepares you know, uh, 25 hours a week or 30 hours a week to the study of the Word of God, and then, and then he comes in and he data dumps all this stuff to me, and then I walk away and I do nothing. You see, it's a good idea. It's not just a good idea. I think it was the way that it was, was uh, used to be done in, in years past. That as you prepare yourself for the Lord's day, you know that you're going to hear from the Word of God. And you know that God is going to call you to obedient faith. You know that no matter what it is that the pastor is going to bring you that morning, that there's something in that passage where God is going to call you and move you to obedient faith. You just know that that is about to happen. And knowing that, instead of falling asleep during the sermon... You decide on Saturday night, you know what? I'm going to go get a little extra rest tonight because I want to be fresh. Because when I hear the Word of God tomorrow, He is going to call me to something. He's going to call me to an action. He's going to call me maybe to repentance. He's going to call me to a renewal of my faith. He's going to call me to obedience. And if I'm asleep, I can't hear it. I won't be ready. I need to be ready. You see, I really believe that as the preacher of God's Word, he comes here, he comes to this place and to this pul pulpit with the goal that we would be formed by the Word of God and that he comes not to share with you. He comes not to share something with you. You know, I, I remember being in Bible study with somebody and, and I'm, I'm actually in my own personal study reading. One of my family members is there watching me read the Word and Oh, would you share? Like, no, I don't share anything. I don't. I don't share anything with you people. I proclaim something. I proclaim what I said at the outset, that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what I proclaim. 
The preacher of God's word doesn't come to share the Lord with people. No, if it's worth listening to, he comes with a bold proclamation. And he says this, there is but one Savior, Jesus Christ. There is one Lord, and it is Jesus Christ. There is but one who may pour out his spirit upon you, and it is Jesus Christ. It is then also that he says, you know, it was your willful rebellion against God that according to his definite plan and foreknowledge, God delivered him over to death on a cross, and it was your sin that held him there. He boldly proclaims this truth. So I want us to know this, that all who gather at Spring Hill Church this morning, therefore know this for certain, that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus, who's on the cross, crucified for my sin and for your sin that held him there. Know this for certain. Now I ask, what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with Jesus? Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. See, Peter was a man, a flawed man, set aflame by the Spirit of God, used as the instrument of God to give utterance, to expose God's people to God's word, to the truth. He was wielding the sword of the Spirit. Peter was but the means that God used among the people that day. It is the Spirit that is at work in what Peter is proclaiming. It is the Spirit that is in, at work in what the pastor preaches on Sunday morning. It is the Spirit at work in the preaching of God's Word. Though through a fallen human agent, it is what God uses to communicate His truth. It is the Spirit that cuts them to the heart. It is not Peter. It is the Word of God the sword of the Spirit in the hand of God's servant that cut them to the heart. Like Hebrews 4.12 tells us, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and the discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. You may have heard me say this before. But the problem, the human problem, is the problem of the human heart. That's the heart of the problem. The heart of our problems is the problem of the human heart. And it is the Word of God that pierces that heart by the power of the Spirit. And they are cut to the heart. See, He's told them there is one Savior. The Messiah that all of the Scriptures told you and foretold about this Jesus, the one whom the prophet David proclaimed and spoke about. He spoke not of himself. He spoke of this Jesus, this Jesus, dead, risen, is both Christ and Lord, Savior and Master. There is one Savior, and it's Jesus Christ. There is one Lord and Master, it is Jesus Christ. There is but one who may pour out His Spirit on you, and it is Jesus Christ. And our willful rebellion against God, according to His definite plan and foreknowledge, God delivered Him over to death on a cross, but it was our sin that delivered Him there. 
So here we are now. When they had heard this, they were cut to the heart, and Peter said to the rest of the apostles, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? See, what happened is that the Spirit of God actually accomplished what he intended through the pre preaching of God's word through Peter, didn't it? The Spirit of God accomplished what it set out to do. That is, cut to the heart. That's what it intended to do, and he used Peter as the instrument to do that. It accomplished the Spirit. He accomplished exactly what he intended to do through the preaching of God's word from Peter. It cut to the heart. It convicted them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Here they are, convicted of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and they go, what do we do, brothers? What shall we do? What can we do with this Jesus? My sin put him on the cross. I am separated from God by my sin. What, what must I do with the fact that, that I sent him willingly to the cross? That I sent Jesus to the cross, that my sin sent him to the cross. What am I to do with this Jesus? They were sitting there, men under conviction. See, this Jesus was both Lord and Christ as Jesus poured out his Holy Spirit on all flesh. Well, the Apostle John teaches us about just what occurs on the day when the Spirit comes upon the human soul. What happens to all of us when the Spirit of God comes upon the human soul? See, in John chapter 16, he says, And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because a ruler of this world is judged. See, these people under convention of the, a conviction of the Holy Spirit have but one question. What are we to do with Jesus? Convinced of the Spirit that He is both Lord and Christ, convicted because of their sin of unbelief, certain that He is righteous. Certain that Jesus is righteous because the tomb they know is empty. The Spirit has just revealed to them that, that this which was poured out on them was because Jesus was indeed raised from the dead. And this Jesus is at the right hand of God. And this Jesus is the one who gives good gifts. And this Jesus has given this gift of the Holy Spirit on which you see. They know then that this Jesus must be righteous. And that they, of course, are not because the tomb is empty. And they're certain that if they have failed to believe in heaven's ruler, Jesus Christ, if they have so proven in the past by their actions that they do not believe in Jesus as heaven's ruler, they must know this sinking feeling in them is this, that if God says the ruler of this age is judged and I don't believe in the ruler of heaven, do I come under that same judgment? What am I to do? That's their question. What am I to do? What will you do with Jesus? God created you in His image. He is the Creator. He is perfect in His being. He is pure and without fault. No darkness dwells in Him whatsoever. And you were born of Adam, inherited His fallen, rebellious nature. 
And in your fallenness, you willingly and intentionally fall short of God's glory. Think about that. You know, when you hear that passage, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sometimes I think we hear that passively. Like you sort of accidentally sin and fall short of the glory of God. See, the human problem, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. Jeremiah says that the human heart is sick. The human heart is sick. Is sick and can't help itself. We see in our fallenness, we willingly and intentionally fall short of God's glory. You and I, by our sin, we have intentionally distorted the image of God. God sent His Son, Jesus, though, as Peter proclaims what the Spirit was teaching them, is that God sent His Son, Jesus, born in real time, this Jesus of Nazareth. He was born in a real place, and He was fully human and fully God, and yet He was without sin. This Jesus testified in word and in deed that He was sent by God, that He was indeed the Word made flesh. He perfectly performed the will and work of God in His humanity. And He is the exact imprint of His nature. This Jesus was nailed to a cross according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And your willing, sinful heart held Him there. This Jesus is the Christ. He is the Redeemer for sin. This Jesus, resurrected from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is the Lord and the Master, and He is the King who reigns from heaven. What are you to do with Jesus? So here is their question. Brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? And Peter answers and said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. See, there's a simple directive from Peter to those who are under conviction concerning their sin of unbelief, concerning the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the judgment of God for sin, there's one directive. Repent. To turn from sin and turn toward God and obey the Word of God and receive the Holy Spirit. The call of the Christian sermon is to repent and believe, to obey the Gospel and receive in yourself the promise of God. This was the early church message all the way through the book of Acts. This was the early church message, and this ought to be still the message today. It is the message today that, that, that churches like to avoid this message. They like to avoid this truth. They really do like to avoid it because it sort of upsets your delicate sensibilities, right? It upsets our human delicate sensibilities, and we don't want to talk about that. But the simple directive is turn from your sin and obey the Word of God and receive the Holy Spirit. This is the sermon that was preached over and over again. This is the early church message in the book of Acts, as I said, in chapter 3, verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may blot, be blotted out. Chapter 8, verse 22. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible... 
the intent of your heart may be forgiven. In chapter 17, verse 30, times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Chapter 20 and verse 21, testifying to both Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. 26.20, declare to those first in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and all throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. And we all know this, too, that was that not the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself? The ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ was a call to repentance. Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Luke 13, 3 and 5. 3 and 5 sort of repeat each other themselves, but I'm gonna, it, it bears repeating twice. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Verse 5, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In volume 1 of Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, verse 47, Jesus commands the disciples that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed to all in His name, to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. This is the command of God. Preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. See, I love this. It's, it's twofold, isn't it? There's the kindness of God that we want to preach we want to preach the holiness of God for sure, right? And that we fall short and that repentance is necessary. But we also want people to know this, that forgiveness of sin is in Jesus Christ. You may be forgiven. God has made the way for you in Jesus Christ to be forgiven of sin. We have to put those two together, right? A call to repentance, but a call to tell people, to let them know, I'm preaching forgiveness in Jesus Christ. So let us define repentance for a second. And this is probably not the greatest uh, definition. This is just the one I'm, I like to use. Repentance is to have a change of heart that leads to a change of direction. Repentance and faith, then, are kind of two sides of the same coin. A change of heart that leads to a change of direction. See, repentance is, is not passive either, is it? Pen, uh, repentance is something that happens internally, but it also has this external point. That repent, repentance is not only turning away from Something, but it's turning to someone. And this turning to someone is an action, you see. You can't just sit and passively hear, hear the word of God. When it, when it commands you to repent and believe in the gospel, it means move. Get up and move. Move away from where you were and move toward Jesus. Because in him there is forgiveness, right? And move with joy. Move with joy because He is the Christ that was sent who died for your sin. Move with joy. Turn from sin and turn to Him. You see, repentance and faith are, are two sides of the same coin. And they're both action. I know a lot of people, when you hear the word faith, when they hear the word faith, oh, just have faith, brother. 
For some, when I've heard that said to me, what they mean is just sit around and do nothing. You got to just have faith and twiddle your thumbs. Faith, if it's real faith, is moving. It is, it is an action. You are doing something. Faith is not just sitting there passive. Faith is work. Faith is good work. It is moving toward Jesus. It is moving in His direction. Moving at His will. John Calvin says that repentance not only follows faith, but that it is produced by it. That faith produces repentance in us. Trust in Jesus. It produces repentance. If we look at verse 38 by itself, let's look at this closely. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If we look at that by itself, and I've heard it preached this way, and some of us might think this, that saving faith is fully a human responsibility to receive. Because look at the order of how this is put. Repent, so you turn. Be baptized, and then you will receive the promise from the Father. So you do work, and then God will do His. That's kind of how some people read this passage. It's like this. Repent, turn in all of your human strength and obey the command to be baptized and then you'll receive the promise of God, the Holy Spirit. But if we take this in context with verse 39, we see that God who is sovereign gives the promise to whomever he calls to himself. So if we read 38 and 39 together, it says, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. So who is it that gives us faith? Who is it that gives us repentance? Faith and repentance are both a gift from God. They are a gift from him. They are a gift. And yet, what we're going to see is that this is incredible, that God gives these great gifts and God is sovereign in salvation. 100% salvation is all a work of God. And yet, Peter here says, you're responsible. There's human responsibility. You have a responsibility to repent and believe. Repentance comes from God, you said. Yes. But you have a human responsibility to turn from sin and turn to God in faith. Yes. Both. How can that be? Well, we have in this section what is called an antinomy. It is something that we have to deal with. It is two truths that sit by themselves, and they're both true. But here in our humanity, what do we want to do with two truths that are, that one truth sitting by itself? Everyone in here would say that God is sovereign. That whatever it is that God wants to do, we agree that the, the scriptures teach that whatever it is that the sovereign God wills to do, He does. Wouldn't we all agree with that? Whatever God wants to do, God does. Because God is God. 
Whatever he puts his heart and mind to do, he does. We know that to be true. We would agree that the scriptures teach that, I think. I think we would all agree with that. And then secondly, we, we see that human beings, they're, they're free moral agents. They make choices. They make moral choices. choices. And yet we also see that we think we, we, we must know this sort of intuitively, right? That we make moral choices and sometimes we, we sin and make bad ones and we're accountable to God for the sins that we commit. We're accountable to Him for our failures. We are accountable to God. And yet there's this human responsibility. Humans are responsible. They need to repent and believe. Yet God is the giver. How do we do this? These two things together seem irreconcilable. We feel like we must reconcile them, don't we? And this is where we get into trouble. Because the gospel calls humans everywhere into account and commands that they repent and obey. And yet, God being the author of salvation and those who repent and believe are only those whom God gives the gift of repentance and faith to. We get into trouble because we want to reconcile these two things. In our human minds, we desire to reconcile human responsibility and the sovereign will of God. We hold that these two truths are enemies of each other. And they're not. They're brothers. They are brothers. They're not enemies of one another. They are a mystery of God. Human beings don't like mystery, do we? We don't like the, we don't like the mystery, mysterious fact that God is God and we are not. And that these two truths can exist at the same time. We have to reconcile them. We have to put them together. We've got to make it fit. But these true truths are true at the same time. You see, what seems irreconcilable to us is just that God is God and it is the mystery. See, God as king, we like, to, we like to think of God as only one thing or only another, but God is king and he is judge at the same time. And as the king, God has sovereign rule. He does whatever pleases him. And every human being is subject to what God wills for them. In that sense, right? That God the king moves us in whatever direction his subjects he wants to. Because God is king. And yet, at the same time, God is the judge. And God as judge holds all people accountable. And he has mercy upon whom he decides to have mercy upon because he is the judge. Some sinners get mercy. Me, praise God. And most of you I know, praise God. Some sinners God gave mercy. Some sinners get justice. No one gets injustice from God. Not one gets injustice from God. Some sinners receive mercy because he is the judge. And we think about this. You might say, so Jeff, what about free will? I've had these conversations with many people. So Jeff, what about free will? I'm not uh, an automatron. What, what about free will? 
Well, I would say this. Your free will is not free as you think it is. You are a free moral agent who is in bondage to sin. Your will has been captured by sin. You're free to exercise all kinds of choices. But you will not choose God without an intervention. Without an intervention from God, you are a slave. Your will is a slave to sin. Your will is in bondage. No human being whatsoever without an intervention from God has a will that is truly free. God must act upon us to make us willing. That is the mystery of the gospel. Why me and not my neighbor? I have no idea. I can't answer that question. I just know that it's good and it's God's perfect plan. I know that it is good. And I rejoice in that truth. God has to make us willing. When Jesus is proclaimed as Christ and Lord, humans have a responsibility at the same time to repent and believe. At the same time, it is God's sovereign choice as to whom he gives the gift of repentance and faith. This Jesus who poured out the gift of the Spirit as both Christ and Lord is the giver of the Holy Spirit. He is the giver of repentance and faith as well as the one who commands humans everywhere to repent and believe. If you listen to Acts 5, 31, it says, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Not only Israel, but all to whom the Father calls. In Acts chapter 11, verse 18 says, And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. As the people heard the sermon of Peter concerning the pouring out of the Spirit, they are convicted of the sin of unbelief concerning Jesus, who has been affirmed as both Christ and Lord by the virtue of His death and resurrection, and they are held accountable by God for their sin, and they must do something with Jesus. And Peter's answer is, repent and believe. You must do something with Jesus because He is Lord and He is Savior, and your sin against God nailed him to a cross. God raised him from the dead that whoever, whosoever God calls, and whosoever God gives the gift of repentance and faith, whosoever will indeed repent and believe, having received in themselves already forgiveness for sins and the gift of the promised Holy Spirit. So what are you to do with Jesus? We'll turn from sin. And you know what the other thing that we need to turn from is, is a self-directed autonomy. You know, that whole thing where I'm in charge, I will not have this man rule over me. Jesus is Christ and Lord. He is Savior and Master. Repentance looks like this. I'm not in charge of me anymore. He is Lord and Master. I am not Lord and Master any longer. Turn from sin and self-directed autonomy and turn to Jesus in obedient faith for the forgiveness of sin. Peter says, be baptized into Christ. See, when he says here, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, 
He's saying, Peter says, be baptized into Christ. Let go of personal autonomy and identify yourself with Jesus as both Lord and Savior. And the promises of God are yours. These promises of God are yours. This spirit that God poured out actually accomplishes what God intends it to do. Let's look at verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Repetition is the key to learning. I'd like to, to, to put it another way. The key to learning is repetition. Having just exhorted them with this sermon, Peter continues to preach the gospel of repentance. He says, with many other words, he continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. See, to put it another way, he just preached the gospel to them that it was their sin that held Jesus to a cross that led him there, that Jesus is both Lord and Savior. And he repeats himself. He exhorted them. Again, save yourselves from this crooked generation. He continues to preach the gospel for the forgiveness of sin. I remember as a youth pastor, one of the students one time said to me, Jeff, when will we ever get past the gospel? And my response to him was something to this effect. When I'm dead, I will stop preaching the gospel. That's when we'll, that's when we'll move on to something else. Because you see, don't you and I need to hear it again and again and again? And each time you hear the good news of Jesus Christ and his death for us, doesn't it cause something in us to say, I must do something with this Jesus. I must turn from myself and turn to him again and again and again. We need this reminder. We easily forget. And further, Peter says, turn to Jesus Turn yourselves away from the fate of those in the world who refuse to hear the gospel. Save yourself from this crooked generation. Repent and turn to Jesus. And if we look around at the world and we see the direction it's going, right, we probably ought to go, no, 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 I'm going this way. They're going that way. I'm going this way, right? Where he goes, I will go. I will follow him, right? And that, this is what he's getting at is save yourself from this crooked generation, this generation that refuses to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, refuses to repent, who, whom God has hardened their heart against the gospel. Don't follow in their ways. Separate, separate yourselves unto Christ. Separate, separate yourself from the people of the world and separate yourself to Christ and his people. Verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. We should notice here that it was those who received the word that obeyed and were baptized. Those who received the word and were baptized. Think about this. I, I, I love the, the word received here. When you have been granted by God's good grace, repentance, and faith, it is a gift. 
When you hear the word of God and you are cut to the heart as these men were, it is a gift. It is God in his great love and his kindness has cut you to the heart that you might turn from sin and turn to him. It is the loving kindness of God that these folks received. And they received in themselves the promise of God, the promised Holy Spirit. Those who are made willing, they are those who are cut to the heart, those who were saved by God's good grace that were made willing, and they were given ears to hear. It is them who received the word of God. And what is the proof that you have received the word of God? What is it? What is faith? What is faith, really? Obedience. Obediently, they went to be baptized. I'm identifying with Jesus. My faith is at work. It is an action. I'm getting it together. I'm not just saying I believe and I trust in Jesus and then I'm sitting on my hands and doing nothing. No. My faith is at work. Get to work in believing. Get to work in following after him. They were baptized. It is an outward sign that God had granted them repentance and faith. That was the outward sign symbol that indeed something had happened to them. That those who were not willing, those who were in bondage to sin have been released from that bondage. That's the sign. I believe I will follow him. I identify with him. That's the proof. Baptism is just a proof of what God has already done in them. They were, they were made willing and they believed. It is it is they, they were 3,000 souls who were quickened by the Spirit. 3,000 souls, can you imagine 3,000 souls at once, quickened by the Spirit. All of a sudden, dead men made alive by the Spirit and added to the kingdom of God by God's sovereign choice. So what we do with Jesus what will you do with the preached Word of God? I'm going to leave us with that. What will you do each Lord's Day with the preached Word of God? Will you come expecting that you're going to hear from Him to do what He tells you to? Will you come expecting to hear each Lord's Day conviction? of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's God's good grace and love toward you to convict you of sin, righteousness, and judgment that you might turn to Him, that you might put your trust in Him. That's the immediate response to the gospel, isn't it? Is to repent and believe. That's the, that's the immediate call from Peter here. And next week, we're going to see another aspect of the gospel that people do not often talk about. But that is... That as we move forward, there's an ongoing pattern for the spirit-filled believer in Jesus Christ. That a life actually is changed and transformed forever. This is the immediate response, right? That's the sign that it, it is happening. You've been granted repentance and faith and you've turned to Jesus and you put your trust in him. And you obediently follow in baptism, identifying yourself with him.
But what do you do next week and next year? What becomes the pattern of your life? To those who truly have received the word of God and are truly saved, there's a pattern that your life takes. There's a thing that you continue in by the power of the Spirit. So I'm going to leave you with that so that next week you can ponder what it is that God may call you to do, what God may call you to do today, having heard the Word of God.